Hey friends, welcome back to the Picture Podcast. I'm your host and today we have special guest speaker Thea Eski with us. Thea is a survivor of child abuse that led to serious consequences later on in her life, including but not limited to addiction, self-harm, abusive relationships, and more. The abuse that she suffered was so profound that it left her with debilitating chronic pain and PTSD. Despite all of her struggles, though, she knew that her gifts as an artist would be her ticket to transcend beyond her circumstances. So with the support of her mother, she poured into that gift and came to the realization that her highest and truest purpose was to be a writer. Now she utilizes her trauma in service of others as an investigative reporter with a mission to leave the world slightly better than she found it. She writes for a publication called The Current Report. It's a Malibu-based digital publication. I'll make sure that I include the link as well as her Instagram and Clubhouse if you would like to connect with Thea. She's currently working on a series of 27 articles concerning the child abuse crisis in Los Angeles, California, and the broader implications of that failure. She's going to come and talk with us today about how now that she's sitting on the other side of the adversity that she has gone through, how it helped shape her into the badass and iconic individual that she is today. I have talked with Thea on um, Clubhouse, and she is an amazing, resilient, inspirational person, and I'm so excited for you guys to hear from her, so let's go get into it, shall we? Hey y'all, it's Jess. I told you we were going to talk to the amazing Miss Thea today, and here she is. Thea, go ahead and give us an introduction of yourself, and let's get started. We want to hear about your story. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me, Jess. Um, I am a journalist, and I work um, mostly in Los Angeles, although I am looking at some stories to follow up, the one that I'm currently working on that have a little bit more of like a national angle to them. Um, but I predominantly work in Los Angeles and the majority of my interest as a journalist has been so far in exposing uh, corruption. Um, and a lot of the stories that I work on expose corruption in some capacity. Gotcha. That sounds kind of scary, actually. <laughs> like that's a big undertaking because the world can be an evil place. People can be bad. There's a lot of bad apples out there. How did you uh, tell us about your story? How did you get into this? Let's let's start way back when and, and take it back. And how did you know that you wanted to become a writer? And how did you get started in writing? And then, you know, how did that progress into what you're doing to now? To, really I can talk I promise how did that progress to what you're doing now which is writing and doing investigative reporting and such so I had always you know I had always been like creative I was like the total um I was the total um dark horse of my family in terms of that like I was the only creative one in my entire family both my parents were lawyers my brother was more math and science um and I was more English creative sort of stuff and so you know, I mean, my mom still has these up in her closet, but I was, she would put me in like art classes at like local stuff. And we would, I would I had to have tons of like crappy art projects that I, you know, made growing up and she still has them. And it's like, I was always doing something creative. And then eventually I got more into acting. Um, and I sort of thought I was going to be an actor for a while. And that ended up quite, not quite working out. And I ended up um, I ended up sort of moving into film and television um, 
And that's sort of where I discovered writing. Um, and it was mostly writing for film and television. So then um, after I graduated college in, oh, how, 2016, there we go. I'm like, I'm trying to, <laughs> that's some, those are the moments when you really start to feel your age. Right, when you, right? Like, when you have to graduate. stop and think about it for a minute. How long ago? Yeah. <laughs> um, but so when I graduated in 2016, I was doing a lot of writing in film and television, a lot of work for commercials. Um, uh, and I was in New York and I just wasn't, I wasn't happy necessarily. So I moved out to Los Angeles to try to push, um, try to push myself up into the film industry. And boy, oh boy, they don't teach you in college that the film industry is not a kind place to anyone that doesn't have a penis or isn't white skinned. So it is very, very, very um and, you know, you sort of are seeing that more now with all of the reporting about people like Harvey Weinstein and Scott Rudin. That is very commonplace in the industry. And um, they do really love to coddle mentally ill sex perverts in Hollywood. That's just kind of what it is. And oh, wow. Um, I was thinking more along like, you know, the old boys club kind of thing. But that's kind well, of a different kind of boys club. <laughs> it's all part and parcel, I'll say. And so... Um, I was working as an assistant for somebody. I don't know if you know that show Vanderpump Rules at all. So I, I was do, actually, yes. So I was actually working. I was actually working for um, someone who was on the show, and um, I think I was just in a very. Uh, it was a very toxic situation, um, but I I try to understand it because this was a person who had just sort of left the show and there was a lot of turmoil around that. And um, so I, I do have some compassion, but I just know that that was very, very, very not, uh, it was just a very mentally abusive situation and it was very triggering for me because I had grown up around a lot of mental abuse and um, it was, you know, it was a lot of gaslighting, a lot of mental abuse, and it was a lot um, of stress. And a lot, you know, I was working 120 hours a week before the pandemic. So it just was like taking a huge toll on me. And so then the pandemic happened and that was sort of great in a way because it was this giant reset button. Like it was the first time in like almost two years that I was able to sort of sit Right. And just like, like take, it was like, like mandatory just, time off. <laughs> yeah, you just like hit a wall, you stopped, and then you really had to sit and sort of identify. Um, you know, like I mean, I mean, not everyone did the pandemic the way that I did. That's totally fine. But I actually lost weight, and I like totally transformed my life. So, gotcha. I mean, I might be like living the pandemic miracle here, and I'm still alive. So that can't be discounted. <laughs> um, so um, I was working actually on a research intensive film script about um, MGM in the 20s uh, through the 70s. And it was about, um, it was sort of about the ways in which that the golden age of Hollywood sort of exploited people like Judy Garland, Lena Horne, and Gene Kelly to sort of, and exploited their dreams to sort of push the system ahead. And so it's sort right. of, so I was working on that for a while and then I finished it and I started submitting it places. And then it just got to a point where I was like, you know what, this is never gonna get made. It, a, it's a period piece because it's set in the 20s through the 70s. So it's it, A, it's a period piece, B, it's a movie musical. And, you know, I just realized like, you know, Hollywood was just not, you know, it's not that I've completely renounced it and there are major problems within it. You know, I mean, everything, 
everything that they're selling you is pretty much a PR spin and a lie, unfortunately. Um, right. And, you know, I mean, you can, your audience can totally look this up. I mean, there, I mean, huge exposés. I mean, it's just the information is out there now. I mean, you can't, I mean, we got to a point and I'm grateful for it where the lid sort of came off the jar and then, you know, the lid sort of came off the jar. And then once that lid was off, it, everything just spilled out, all the rot spilled out. And so it became right. apparent and to, you know, more lay people that aren't in the industry, how terrible it actually is, you know, and, and it really, you know, it really, a, a floodgate broke open around the Harvey Weinstein thing. And now with the Scott Rudin thing, I mean, that really broke open a floodgate. Um, and so I just realized it really wasn't, it's not that I, you know, and there's so much crossover these days. So the work that I'm doing now could easily be turned into a documentary or, you know, who knows? I mean, you know, I, I'm not like desperately seeking to go back into Hollywood right now because I feel like journalism is a place where I've actually been able to really make a difference and, mm-hmm. um, and where I'm actually doing work that matters. Um, not to say that you can't do that in Hollywood, but I haven't seen many good movies in the last decade. And I don't know <laughs> many people in your audience. I mean, I don't know if there's a comment section, but you know, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but I personally haven't seen many movies that really have something to say come out in the last 10 years, 20 years since the 1980s. So um, I just ended up um, sort of sitting and thinking like what was important to me. And, you know, I really started to focus back on, you know, what was important to me when I was looking for a job. And one of the things I put on a list, I have this journal that I write in. And one of the things I put on the list was an ability to make a difference. And so then it was finding out what is the best way to make a difference. And so then um, one of the boys that I'm writing about, uh, Gabriel Fernandez had a memorial, his family had a memorial service up in Palmdale. And I ended up going to that um, just because I had watched, there's a documentary on Netflix called The Trials of Gabriel Fernandez. And if you haven't seen it, if anyone in your audience hasn't seen it, I totally recommend it. It's very, very heartbreaking and it's very, very tough. It's about severe child abuse and municipal failure, but it gives you a very good snapshot. I think just as much as they can in a six hour docu-series, but it gives you a very good snapshot of how Los Angeles fails children. And then it gives you a very good snapshot of how Los Angeles fails children. And so I had watched that in 2020 and, um, you know, I was watching it. And one of the, the person who prosecuted these two, the person, people that murdered Gabriel Fernandez, um, who I've actually gotten to know and interviewed for my series. He's a lawyer by the name of John Hatami. And he's, I can't like, I cannot say enough good things about him because without him, I don't think my articles would be as successful um, as they are. And he is, he's a deputy district attorney and he works in a unit of the DA's office that prosecutes really complex child abuse cases, um, sexual abuse cases, elder abuse cases. And, you know, I mean, he, he, like, he really helped restore my faith in humanity after everything I went through and, um, after everything I went through in Hollywood, because he is such a kind, like, I, I literally cannot say enough good things about him. He is such a kind person and he moves through the world with such a great sense of integrity. And it's very similar to my worldview. And so it's kind of nice to know that there's one person in this fight that actually is like worthwhile, you know, that, cause there's so much rot and so much, you know, just moral failure. And it's nice to be able to sit and talk with him. And so anyways, long story short, a year ago, I was watching that documentary and I was seeing how he tried these parents and I was thinking, wow, I wish I could do something that made that kind of difference. Mm-hmm. So then flash forward to this 
flash forward to this funeral and I ended up being able to meet him there because he was there because he's you know he's close to the family obviously because it's like they all went through a major battle together and they prevailed um right. not to spoil the documentary but I mean you know, <laughs> like totally give away the ending of the documentary but they did prevail I mean both the parents were found guilty of guilty and are going to spend the rest of their lives in prison and one of them was sentenced to death um and so uh, you know, I mean, they prevailed. And so he was there and I got to meet him. And so then after that, I was, I called my mom on the way home and said, I think I know what I want to do. I think I want to figure out a way to do journalism. And so then from there, it really became, you know, figuring out how to pitch. And, you know, I mean, I pitched to the publication that I write for now on a Monday, I heard that I got it on a Wednesday. So it was like insanely fast. And then I was off to the races and I, awesome. you know, here I am five months later and I'm, knee deep in child abuse, uh, which child I'm knee deep in child abuse and municipal failure. So gotcha. Quite wow. a, bit of a long answer, but you know, Oh, that's fantastic. I feel like I've lived many lives. Like <laughs> Given us a good background, a good, a good view into it. So, so you got to meet this guy at the, um, at the ceremony, right? At the memorial ceremony. Yeah. How did you, this is just like, were you like, okay, this is what I'm going to write about or did so, you take I a mean, little bit more? So, yeah. So I think for me, I had, you know, I mean, for me, I had really, it was sort of just to me, it was sort of, I was inspired by that event. You know, I mean, these are, this is a group of people who were all brought together by this tragedy and, you know, watching the documentary and, you know, watching the documentary and, you know, I had tons of questions, you know, I had tons of questions because the documentary, right. it does a good job and you'll see it when you watch it of answering questions, but, you know, they weren't able to talk to DCSF in the documentary. They weren't able right. to talk to certain people that really could have answered some questions that I think were still lingering in the community after, um, you know, after this. So I think for me, it was sort of, it sort of became you know, it sort of just sort of naturally all came together. And also the publication that I write for this guy, this guy that I met, I didn't realize it at the time, but he was also producing a few articles for them. Um, he was also producing a few articles for them at the time. And so that's sort of how, and so okay. strategy wise, I sort of thought, well, if I'm gonna pitch to this publication and he's part of it, and he's somebody obviously that would be a perfect person to interview for these articles, you know, I had the idea sort of in my head for, you know, a year that, that something needed more needed to be done to expose the story. And I sort of put it on the back burner because I was still sort of in that Hollywood mentality of like, just focus on trying to get your script out there and trying to get some, like nobody to notice it that will then maybe get you to the next level. And so I, you know, I, I, you know, and so it ended up being this weird synergy where it's like, you know, I, I think the reason I got it so quickly looking back on it is because, you know, is because of that connection and that I found that connection quickly and it all sort of synergistically happened over the space of like, you know, I went, that memorial service was in January, end of January, and then this, or no, it was at the um, end of February, actually. And so it all sort of synergistically sort of happened Okay. Where I sort of was looking into, I was sort of looking into where to pitch. And then I came across, you know, I was looking him up because obviously I wanted to interview him. And then I came across the publication. I was thinking, you oh, know, this is great. And, right. you know, it all sort it of ended up working quite, 
Yeah. Yeah. Quite synergistically as, you know, the universe does for people that work really hard and sacrifice a lot. Eventually it all sort of, <laughs> you know, good things do happen still sometimes <laughs> together. Yeah. And it's uh it's a little hard to see that sometimes I'll be honest. Cause you know, of everything, you know, how knee deep uh, in how knee deep in this sort of like very murky, dark, you know, and murky and dark and sort of corrupt place that I'm in. So it's, you know, you really have to take the moments to like cling on to the light. And, you know, again, I mean, I, I don't think I could have told the story as effectively as I am without someone like John, because he is literally a linchpin. I mean, he literally is like the linchpin source for all of this. And I, that's not an exaggeration because I mean, he's literally lived through I mean, he's dedicated an entire career towards advocating for children and he's lived through these cases and he's living through these cases. He's lived through, you know, I mean, he's lived through. He's like you know, in, the mean, he's he's in the trenches. Yeah, he's in the trenches and he really, yeah. and he really has a certain authority because of that. You know, he really has a certain authority because of that, that really gives a lot of credibility to the articles. And I mean, he's been so, I mean, he's been like beyond kind and, you know, I mean, he's been great to interview. I mean, he's one of those people where you just can ask him a question and he'll just talk and he'll give you so much and he'll give you so many good quotes, um, <laughs> you know, and if, if you, your audience can see the first article. I mean, he's quoted extensively in that and the quotes that he gave were so powerful and so amazing. And so again, I can't, I mean, he is literally the linchpin of all this and I can't, you know, I can't say enough good things about yeah. him. That's awesome. That's awesome. Okay, so so in your introduction, in the information you sent me that I used for your introduction, we talked about how you um, you have um, the PTSD and you the, your, the trauma that you experienced growing up was pretty severe and that you have turned that into um, helping become the badass, I think it, you said the badass icon that you are today. On the other I mean, side, not to on, the, <laughs> on the other side of things, and that you're using your voice to serve others who are going through trauma and dealing with trauma and stuff. So, um, I I want to know. So I know you're doing this this set of 27 articles that is on um, child abuse in LA, right? Specifically yeah. in LA. Um, I'm, yeah, it is pretty. I mean, I'm here in LA, so of course it has to be specific to where I am because you want to. You know, right. you want to ground right. the story in something. So, yeah, you wouldn't want um, to be in LA and writing an article about child abuse in like Kentucky or something. That wouldn't make sense. <laughs> but the thing about the thing that I've realized doing this is that Los Angeles might be at the top of a very peculiar, weird mountain where tons of children die because the system does not care about their welfare. And we can, I mean, I want to stay focused on the question you asked me, but that's definitely something to touch on later. But, um, I'm sure it's like it's it's awful everywhere. I'm sure that there's that amount of evil going on everywhere around the world. It's not this just, just really represents a snapshot. I think yeah. what's powerful about this is this represents like a particularly egregious example gotcha. of the municipal failure to protect children, um, you know, for the utilitarian sake of, you know, government serving the most people possible, which I right. mean, of course, we don't, you know, I mean, of course, government can only do so much. And, you know, uh, you know, of course, government can only do so much. But I think really the main job of the government is, is to protect its citizens. I mean, it's really whether it's the police, whether it's funding police, whether it's the army and the federal government. I mean, that is the main job of the government is to protect its citizens. Oh, and right, right. 
you know, I mean, that's just what it is. So then it really, you really have to think like, you know, I mean, you really have to think like, what kind of community do you want to live in then if you're just willing to abandon protecting, if you're willing to abandon protecting certain classes of citizens, like right. especially vulnerable ones like children. Right, right. Yeah. I'm, I mean, they, they literally depend on um, they literally depend on adults for their out life, life outcomes. I mean, like I am, I, this is, this relates back to the question. I mean, like so many of my life outcomes were shaped by the trauma that I endured as a young child in terms of self-esteem, in terms of being susceptible to being in abusive relationships and addiction issues. There's so many things that, that there are so many things that this affects in a child. And this is it why shapes it's who so- you become. It's so perplexing to me that people are okay with this. You know, I mean, that people are this apathetic in Los Angeles that, that we've, we've gotten to a place where it's almost like in their minds, it's like they're okay with this. You know, they're okay with this on some aspect because they're willing to let it happen to a certain amount of children. I mean, there's really no other conclusion. It's unfortunate, but, and, you know, I mean, of course it's a, of course it's, you know, a human based system. So I'm not saying it's going to be hundred percent perfect. And I don't think any of the families that of these dead children want it to be hundred percent perfect. I think what, you know, I think majority, what the majority of people want in the County is to, you know, from the research that I've done and from the people I've talked to so far, it's like the majority of what people want is to protect children and right, right. that really looks like DCSF stepping up and doing its job. Yeah. Really, I mean, really stepping up and doing its job because, you know, and I, I, we were we were talking about this a little bit earlier before we started, but I mean, the social safety net in our county is non-existent. That means that if that means that if a child is in danger, DCSF is really not there to do. You know, it's really not there providing a strong social safety net it's really, you know, I mean, it's really not there providing a strong social safety net. And so, you know, what it's important for people to understand, and this, this is, again, this could relate to anywhere you live, whether you live in Los Angeles or not, but specifically, if you live in Los Angeles, this is important to pay attention to because the criminal justice system then becomes the de facto place where these, you know, the, the criminal justice system becomes the de facto place where that where, where the last little gasp of justice is. So really, it's almost like we're asking people like John who are already dedicated, you know, who are already dedicated to this in a career, we're asking them then to shoulder the burden of welfare of children. But the unfortunate thing about that is the legal system only intervenes when there's a crime committed. So John can only do something if a child is tortured and murdered, right? So yeah, the yeah fact there's, that we're, there's the been fact lots that the of is stories a, like that, sorry. I'm gonna no, but the fact <laughs> there's the been fact, lots of stories that I've heard where people have had that happen, where they have called for help, and I can't remember. There was one gal that I talked to not too long ago where they had called for help, and instead of help coming, they were told that they couldn't do anything unless like blood was drawn or they were hospitalized, or something severe, something super bad happened. It was like. Are you kidding me? Why do you have to wait till something so extreme happens to come and help? Like, yeah. Anyhow, just your comment there made me think of that. Sorry to jump in on you there. No, that's okay. <laughs> but I mean, I can just talk and talk and talk. So.
I can just talk and talk and talk. So, I mean, it's good. It's kind of good to keep like the flow going, but um, no, but it's important to understand that because why are we as a county okay with that point? Like, why are we okay with intervening once child children are tortured and murdered? And John had a great quote in my first article about this. He said, you know, he said, you know, and, you know, and he said, it's like, you know, when I was interviewing him, he said in the course of the interview, it's like, shouldn't we be intervening before children are tortured and murdered? Like, shouldn't we be intervening way before, way before John's job even becomes necessary? I mean, he's, right, he, right. we should be intervening. And this is, this is literally the heart of all of this. I mean, this is the central question that is really important out of these articles for people to understand, or one of them is really what kind of communities do you want to create and what kind of communities do you want to live in? Because these questions, you might think that it doesn't affect you because you live in a nice neighborhood and you don't live in Palmdale, like these three boys. I mean, all these three boys, one of them lived in Lancaster, two of them lived in Palmdale. That's like, from where I live in Hollywood, that's like 60 miles away, right? So you might, so anyone listening to this that lives in California or just anyone listening to this, they might think, oh, well, how could this, how could this person who's not related to this be affected by this? And how can this be important to understand? Because that's so far away from where I live, like, it's never going to happen to me. Well, it could happen to you. It easily could happen to you. Yeah. And why, what I, what I really try to do is I try to personalize this as much, you know, I mean, these three boys, they represent a microcosm of an entire failure. Well, the entire failure doesn't just affect poor children. It doesn't just affect Latino children, although all of these three boys, they're, they're all Latino. It doesn't just affect minority boys. It doesn't just affect lower boys of lower socioeconomic status. It doesn't just affect boys in bad neighborhoods. This, if you are, if you are okay with the fact that there is not a strong social safety net, then you are condemning every child in the county potentially to suffer unnecessary harm because you made a cynical decision that children are don't their children and their rights and their protection doesn't matter right and that the social safety net does not matter for children at all right in your research on this stuff how much of that thought process if you would would you say is from people just turning a blind eye and not wanting to be involved versus people turning a blind eye because they just don't think that it will happen because it didn't happen to them. They've never had any experiences like that. So they just don't understand or because of the organization itself, the DCF, DCFS, I think is what you called it, right? Yeah. Um, Department of how they're, how they're portraying what they're doing versus what they're really doing. So, I mean, I think it's all three. So for the, for that one, you mentioned about, you know, sort of like people can't relate to it. You know, in my first article, I was able to speak to a a Yale professor who used to work in the CDC's violence prevention unit, the center of disease control in the federal government. And, you know, I, I asked her, you know, as part of my interview, I asked her why this crisis, because it is a crisis and that is an intentional choice of words. And I use it absolutely intentionally for what it means. We are in a crisis. If 257 children are dying in five years, that's a crisis. If the system is so hollowed out that the social safety net doesn't exist, in my opinion, that's a crisis. So I asked her, 
why, you know, if she, I asked her first and you'll see this in the article um, and I definitely recommend that you read the article because a lot of that first article really does a good job of sort of centering you in the background of what is going on, you know, okay. you know, what is it going to take? That's the name of the first article. And so it's really okay. that, that question is really the heart of all of this. It's like, what is it going to take for this to stop? Right. And so I was able to ask her, like, do, does she think that this is a public health crisis similar to AIDS, COVID, cancer? And she said, yes, of course. And then I asked her, well, why do you think that comparable attention isn't being given to this? And she said, people just don't understand it. You know, she's, and, and it's unfortunate because it is kind of, you know, I think it, you know, I think for a long time, and I think for a long time, it really has been seen as sort of like a dirty little secret or something that really only happens in families and it's not meant to be talked about. The same thing, the same tired tropes that you hear about domestic violence between adults, you know, it's the same tired tropes. And right. so I think, I think people, I think it's, I think it says a lot though, especially, um, I think it says a lot though about the people that think that way more than it does about this situation because I've never, you know, I've never, I've never been around somebody who's murdered, right? And you know, right. I mean, I've never, I've never been a victim of a lot. Of, I mean, I've been a victim of some crimes, but I've never been a victim of all the crimes. But I right. still have empathy, right? So it's right. like the fact that you don't have the empathy then to sort of tap into understand how you know, that you don't have that kind of empathy and that you're okay not understanding. I mean, I think that says a lot more about sort of the society or the moment we're in, unfortunately. And then as far, what were the other two questions? It was about DCSF as a bureaucracy. And then what was the first one? So I want to make sure I answer all of them because they're yeah, all the last part important was to understand. Was about how, like, you know, obviously they're going to be putting out to the, the local area that they serve, that they service a certain way versus how they're really doing things. Right. So I think a big problem with DCSF, and this is why it was such a coup that I actually was able to speak to DCSF and get them on the record for my articles. But I think a really big problem with DCSF is for a long time, they, they and even now, I mean, people are congratulating me. It's like people are celebrating me. I mean, every time I say, oh, I got DCSF on the record, people like freak out. Like it's this big deal because it is, it is a big deal. Um, it is a big deal. You know, I mean, I knew it was a big deal. I guess I just thought in my brain and my reporter brain, I was like, well, you got to try to get them on the record because that's just what a good ethical reporter is supposed to do. You're supposed to well, speak to yeah, adversarial makes, sources and, you know, yeah, and it makes sense because they're the subject matter, right? Like they're the big organization behind what's going on. Like that would only make sense. So, yeah. you know, so in my head, I didn't really think like, oh, I'm doing anything like groundbreaking. I just thought, well, you know, it's going to be hard. I know it's going to be hard. They really lack transparency. So getting cracking that brick wall will be a huge feather in a huge feather in my cap. It'll be I'll be able to then take those answers that I get and really hopefully provide answers to questions that the families of these dead boys have, the community has, people like John have that just linger after tragedies like this happen. Um, and you know, I think, I think, you know, a big problem is, is that DCSF lacks transparency, but you also have to understand that the way that the California laws are written, they're actually written in a way that protects the system and protects the bureaucracy. So by that, I mean, it's actually under California law. If I was to call DCSF and ask them if they knew about a child in their care, even if the child, like Gabriel Fernandez, for example, I, if I was to call and ask someone at DCSF about Gabriel Fernandez today, 
even given that there's all been all this high profile media attention, there's been a documentary, there's been tons of news reports, there's been so much, so much is known that he was part of DCSF and they literally cannot acknowledge that under California state law. So I also think it's important you know, I don't, I'm not here to like shill for DCSF. I definitely think they have culpability in this, but I also think it's important to understand that it's a whole apparatus in place that's designed to protect the system that doesn't just stop with DCSF. And I think, right. so I, so I don't, I don't want to lionize DCSF as any means, but they are not the only problem. They're not the only problem here. And I think that's right. also important oh, yeah. to understand for sure is because and this is what I mean when I say it's so interlinked and so murky and so, you know, it's so entangled in everything because it's not just the organization that's the problem. It's it's the culture and the laws and the way that our legislature out here operates, you know, and the way that lawmakers out here operate and the way that criminal justice system is now being perverted. I don't know if you know about George Gaston at all in California or if you know about any of these uh, rogue prosecutors for these, yeah, um, right. they call them progressive prosecutors, but I really call them rogue prosecutors because they, they're they basically interested in completely upending public safety for their own political ends, basically, unfortunately. Gotcha. Um, and, you know, they're basically, you know, and George Gascon is one of them. And so, you know, and so I, I think, again, it's, it's so interconnected because if George Gascon takes the power away from people like John to seek maximum penalties under the law, for child murderers and torturers, if if that is what happens, if that's if that's what happens, then it really, really, really is a fearful place for our county because we already exist in a place where there's no social safety net. And then if we don't have a social safety net, as I was mentioning earlier, it becomes incumbent on the criminal justice system to really pick up the slack of all of this. And then you have someone who's trying to hollow out the criminal justice system by not charging, not appropriately charging special circumstances, not seeking life without the possibility of parole, not seeking the death penalty. And look, the death penalty is a little bit of more of an ideological argument. Like I, like I totally understand why people are for it. I totally understand why people are against it. It's really an ideological argument. So set the death penalty aside, but even, even the fact that George Gascon is not willing to seek life without the possibility of parole for someone that tortures and murders a child. That means that that person who tortured and murdered a child can get out of prison conceivably. I mean, it's not, maybe it won't happen. Maybe it will. I'm not trying to fear monger here by any means, but the fact that we are existing in a society where victims' rights are being completely abandoned, where families who have gone through unspeakable trauma, like Gabriel's family, like Anthony's family, like Noah's family, at the hands of these, at the, at the hands of these parents, the fact that they matter less than people that torture and murder children, I don't understand that, and I don't. I also don't understand, in terms of in terms of politically controversial stances, I don't understand when it became politically controversial to want public safety. I don't right, understand right. when it became politically controversial, especially in Los Angeles County. I don't know when it became politically controversial to say that victims matter more than the criminal defendant, especially when the criminal defendant goes out and hurts innocent people. I mean, you would think in terms of just an, or in terms of the natural order of a civilized 
and just society, you would think that, that we would tend more towards innocent victims as opposed to catering towards the criminal defendant. And then right. also it's, it's, um, it's, you know, I mean, these, these, these child abuse cases are being affected. I mean, in, in, in Anthony's case, um, you know, John had to go into court and basically he had originally, so basically the way that it works in Los Angeles is there's a committee that oversees the death penalty. So he goes and he presents to the committee, they look at mitigation, they look at a ton of, um, you know, they look at it, they really do a good job from what he's told me, they do a really good job looking at the circumstances of the case. And it's not a light decision they make to recommend that somebody dies. I mean, this is a serious crime, I think by all metrics. I mean, Anthony's parents tortured him and murdered him over a period of many, many months. So I think in terms of, I think in terms of, you know, I personally, I personally can understand why people wouldn't support the death penalty. And if you don't support the death penalty, that's fine. But there needs to be, and so death penalty or not, there needs, there still needs to be proportionate punishment for the crime. And John really went in, John had to go into court and say that he didn't want to seek the death penalty anymore, which in, in from what I've gathered, there wasn't any reason other than the fact that George Gascon is ideologically saying that we will not charge the death penalty in any case. I mean, that's literally in one of, he has a whole list of special directives that he's put out and that's literally in his special directive so there's no new evidence there's no new mitigating circumstance that would warrant dropping the death penalty that this committee decided whether you agree with it or not there's no new information here it's all being done because somebody has a somebody because George Gaston's political agenda is really aligned towards upending upending public safety in Los Angeles and it's unfortunate because people that are already suffering are now suffering more. And so this is right. what I mean when I well, say it's so interconnected because it's about criminal justice reform. It's about the poverty industrial complex. It's about corruption. It's about, it's it really, and, and the core of all of this is like I was saying before, it's really what kind of society do you want to live in? Right. And what, what kind of world do you want to live in? What kind of communities do you want to create? What kind of places do you want to live in? Because- right. Well, and I come from a background of, um, my I have my family is a biker family. Um, I've got lots of uncles and in my growing up years and, and things that I picked up along the way, one thing I definitely did pick up from the different uncles that were going in and out of prison, in and out of jail, and the things that I learned along the way, one thing I know for sure, when people go to jail and they don't get the death penalty, but they go to jail because they've harmed they're like a rapist or a pedophile or a child abuser, justice is still served. It might not be via, you know, a court order death penalty, but karma definitely, whatever you want to call it. Right. Well, we can't know. even get life without the possibility of parole in Los Angeles. George Gaston wants even the most hardened criminals. And let me just make this clear for your audience. That means people who rape people, who decapitate people, who murder people, who torture children. He wants to let them out in 20 years. Blanket policy. It doesn't matter how severe the crime is. And so this is what Awful. I'm saying. I am personally, th I personally think that there are meaningful reforms that can be made in the criminal justice system. I think there are many yeah. people, many victims that feel like reforms can be made and should be made. I don't think being a victim means that you also don't look at the criminal justice system and you think there aren't problems that need to be addressed, but this is not reform. Let me be clear, this is anarchy. If you're just blanket, if you're just blanket saying that you want yeah. to let 
yeah, child it doesn't matter. and murders out of prison. That is not about public safety. That is not about reform. That is literally anarchy. And the thing that's really important to understand is people like George Gaspon, people like the Board of Supervisors in Los Angeles who are really pushing these anar anarchistic agendas, they are totally insulated from the consequences of those agendas because they get security that is funded by us, the taxpayers. I pay for them to have private security teams right. to protect them. And so this is the thing, they run around talking about how they wanna, you know, the board of supervisors is running around talking about how they wanna shut down prisons, how they, you know, they wanna shut, they right. approved to shut down men's central jail, which is like huge, which is like, I was reading somewhere actually that it's the number one mental, de facto mental hospital in the entire country because after deinstitutionalization in the 70s, mentally ill people were turned out onto the streets and then incarcerated and jails essentially became de facto mental hospitals because we did not know how to create meaningful funding around community-based care systems across right. the United States. So deinstitutionalization in the 70s was a doomed to fail experiment. Now, 50 years later, it seems like people aren't learning that lesson. And right, they just want to turn, they want to deinstitutionalize again, and they want to turn all these people out onto the streets with no plans, because there's no plan from the Board of Supervisors about what kind of community-based services. They're just, I, I guess, in, their, in the people that votes for this mind, they're just expecting them to spring up out of nowhere. So they want to defund all of this. They want to destabilize Los Angeles, but they're totally insulated from the consequences of destabilizing the county. And so this, right. is, this is the thing that's important for, if you, especially if you live in Los Angeles, this is the moment where you really need to get activated and shake out of your apathy because we... If we're not going to get police officers, why is it fair that we're paying for those people who are making the decisions to not give us public safety in the form of police, lawyers, right. you know, a right. why do they get protection, system? but you guys don't have access to protection? It's like, why are why am I giving up my protection for the political ideology of someone who is never going to have to deal with the consequences of right. the choices that they make on my behalf? Right. right. And, and for example, I mean, George Gaston also doesn't charge misdemeanors. So he doesn't charge like a whole litany of misdemeanors, trespassing, loitering for prostitution, uh, theft up to $950. And I can tell you about the theft up to $950 because I was in a 7-Eleven near my house today going in to just buy a drink. And literally this homeless mentally ill, I, I can't say he's definitively mentally ill, but he seemed mentally ill because he was ranting about being in federal prison. So... <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't want to stereotype too much, but I don't want to stereotype too much by any means, but he definitely seemed mentally ill and he walked in, he just took a ton of stuff off the shelf and just walked right out of the store and the store owner couldn't do anything. That's crazy. I don't even know who this guy is. And it's, I'm just glad that I don't live in California because that would be crazy. Well, look him up because I think it's important for people because this isn't just happening in California either. This is happening in Chicago, New York, Pennsylvania, this these these rogue um quote unquote progressive although i prefer rogue because they're really not progressive this is not progressive this is like this is like this is something out of like marxism i mean this is not progressive this is literally just anarchy and a complete lack of public safety for a political agenda that makes no sense for that makes no sense for anyone that lives in in these communities it doesn't make sense and so Right. No, I mean, so but I, I get fired up about it because this is this is a, this is just like I'm getting fired up about it because it, it sh it's upsetting. It should be upsetting. I mean, this is literally 
it's it's just literally like we're at a point where now we can't even agree that child torturers should spend a long time in prison. Right. And when did right. that become politically controversial? When did was we that ever a question? Yeah. It's like, when did that even become a question? When did we as a society decide that people that torture and murder children are not going to be punished to the fullest extent of the law? Right, right. I mean, All right, we'll ridiculous. take a big breath. Take a big breath. Breathe in, breathe out. <laughs> no, I know. I could get on myself. You've given everybody a lot time. of info to think about. Um, a lot I of can... things to look up and read and learn about. <laughs> well, stay tuned because this is all going to come out in my articles too. I mean, this is yeah. what I'm saying about how interconnected everything is. And this is why it really expanded over time to a series of 27 articles. Originally, it was going to be six. And then it sort of, as I sort of dived into research it more, I really, you know, because I'm, I'm, you know, those personality tests you take. So I'm really a seeker personality type. So okay. I'm really motivated about getting to the core truth of any situation, you know, figuring out like, I'm a seeker. Like, so I like information. I sort of like getting the truth right down to the core. And so right. as I started to pursue that truth down to the core, I realized this is much more interlinked and murky and we're in this big, you know, yeah. and I get fired up about it because I'm a human being, but realistically we are in a huge inflection point in society. And I acknowledge that, but also we have to really examine the consequences and we can't be so reactive to the moment that we're in even though it's necessary in some ways to meet the moment that we're in, we cannot be so reactive to the moment that we do things that are going to damage the fabric of our society, both from just a public safety standpoint, but also what's important to understand from is a social capital standpoint as well. You yeah. know, and especially with these victims of crime in listening to them and talking with them, I cannot tell you how many of them have said, I don't, I feel left behind by the criminal justice system. And I used to feel comfort in it because I thought it was a place where I could go to get some kind of refuge after this grave injustice that I didn't ask for that was foisted upon me. Right. So the fact that, that, that linking capital, which is linking social capital, which is how, how people like you and I relate to and trust the ones that govern us. So the fact that that social capital is being eroded, that is extremely, extremely scary. There is so much to be worried about, about what is going on. Yeah. There's so right. much to be worried about, about what is going on. And I just hope, 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 you know, I just hope, hope, hope beyond that we get to a point where, where calmness can win the day and people can really, really step back and look at the intended and most importantly because there's a lot of unintended consequences of these actions that people are taking that i don't think they've thought through stop right. and really pause and think about what are the unintended consequences of right. these policies that you are putting forward and what they represent for vulnerable people because there is a direct link from these three dead children to george gascon oh wow like I just demonstrated, because yeah. George Gascon refuses to seek the death penalty in Anthony's case, right? That is a direct link between these families feeling closure right. and the criminal justice system. And that is a direct link between these three boys and that. So I really, really, really hope that if anyone is in Los Angeles, that this sort of, if any one of your listeners is in Los Angeles, that this really galvanizes them and really forces them to sort of take a stand for this, because this is important. And you know, it's not really a movement. I mean, there is there is a recall movement um, that that is trying to get George Gascon out of office, and I'm not really 
I, I mean, I'm not really a part of the like recall movement per se. Um, it's really done by a lot of victims of crime and supporters of victims of crime. And I'm a supporter of a victim of, of victims of crime, but also it just sort of became this murky line of like not wanting to seem too, you know, slanted in my right. coverage or not wanting to seem too slanted in what I do. Um, right. And so if you're in Los Angeles, look into that, call your city council people, demand action. There are votes of no confidence that are happening all over the county. There's 27, no, 20, 24, uh, 24 cities that have already voted no confidence in George Gascon and his policy. So just please, if you're, if, if you can, if now is the time where we need as many voices to speak up for children, to speak up for victims, to speak up for vulnerable people and to speak up for hate crimes. I mean, George Gascon, He's never tried a case. So I think that's also important to know. He's not charging hate crimes. There were, you know, he started charging hate crimes again after media pressure, but for two weeks when he first got into office, he wasn't charging hate crimes. Um, so again, please, 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 even if you don't live in Los Angeles, just really understand that Be this aware. is the tip of an iceberg. This is the tip of a very, very, very specific iceberg and just be aware and really look out for children. And really, you know, I hope that out of everything you understand that these three children were denied a voice in their lifetime. And so the way to respect that and acknowledge that is to really be a voice for children when you see them suffering or be a voice for children in general, get involved, volunteer, do things to help children because children, especially vulnerable children in already that already are really behind. It's like it's like being at the starting line of a race, right? And there are yeah. some people that are right up at the starting line. There are some people that are five meters behind. And then these children are, you know, in a whole other stadium. So gotcha. do do your part to get them into into line with these other children because they need you. Vulnerable people need advocates to stand up for them, and it, it should not be politically controversial to stand up for victims of crime. Right. I love it. I love your message. I love your passion for your message. And you've shared a lot of information. I feel like I need to like watch the news and pay <gasps> more. <laughs> I know. I know, I know that there's stuff out there. Like I know, I know there's stuff out there because of my childhood, my upbringing, things that I have encountered in my lifetime and my, my experiences. And I see stuff on the news too, but it gets to, it's gotten to a point where it's like, there was, I mean, you can only do so much, right? Like you can be a voice and you can vote a certain way and you can support a certain cause, but like until certain people in power change their way of thinking and doing things or are are taken out of that position and somebody proper put in who's going to do the right thing, it just gets overwhelming. So I just tend to not watch the news very often. So I don't know a whole lot about a whole lot of anything going on politically or, you know, in the news kind of thing, like what the weather and, you know, that the there's road construction, three neighborhoods over kind of thing. And it's not because I'm turning a blind eye. It's just because for my mental health and my anxiety and my stress levels, it's like, okay, I don't need any, I don't need to hear any of the horrible evil that's going on. I know that horrible evil is going on, but I don't need to hear about it because I can't function. But without, <laughs> but that's the thing. And I think this is a good place to sort of end. I mean, I think it sort of, I think this sort of sums up the whole point of this is without engaged people like me, yeah. this, 
this kind of stuff is allowed to fester, right? I mean, this kind of stuff is allowed to fester. So yes, obviously you have to deal with your own mental health and your own ability to handle really tough, complex issues and really complex images of terrible child abuse. And, you know, I mean, you know, you really, and, you know, even in my articles, I have to grapple with that because so much of journalism is about, so much of journalism is really about harm reduction. It's really about, you know, how do you describe, you know, what Gabriel Fernandez went through, which was horrific. How do you describe that in a way that doesn't look away from it, that acknowledges it, that says, this is the grounded reality of why I'm fighting for this and why this is important because no child should have eight babies lodged in their skin. No child should die at the age of eight. No child should be malnourished, have broken bones, have teeth missing that were pulled out with pliers, locked in a cabinet, handcuffed, bound, gagged, like no, so, but it's like, how do you, it's like, how do you talk about that in a way that is respectful? Because obviously this is a trauma that still, it's still very much an open wound for so many people um, around, around this case, the family, the community, And it's like, how do you, so even in that, it's like, you really have to think about how you acknowledge it, how, what's the best way to talk about this, where it doesn't look away from what's actually happening. And it acknowledges the reality of the situation, which is that these are horrific deaths. These are not, you know, I mean, you have to do enough that people really understand that these are not, you know, suicides. These are not, you know, these are not, you know, a, these are not like one-time injuries. These are severe, right. long-term, like over sustained the injuries. Wild, yeah. You know, in Gabriel's case, he was being abused for eight months. I mean, tortured, locked in a cabinet, shot with BBs. Um, you know, having being punched in the mouth, having chunks of his hair ripped out, and scabs all over his head. I mean, these these are serious, serious things, and so. You know, even even in that, it's like, how do you talk about, you know, how do you talk about this kind of stuff while, how do you talk about this kind of stuff to an audience to make them understand that these are serious, serious crimes that deserve serious, serious punishment and also have a lasting impact because have a lasting impact on the child even if they survive it has a lasting impact on the child oh most definitely it it's it's got a lasting impact on everybody involved that child the immediate family members that were not part of the abuse the people that they're going to associate with in their teens the people they're going to associate with and have relationships with as adults yeah most definitely you know, in Gabriel's case, um, he had a brother and a sister, too, who witnessed all of the abuse that he was subjected to. I mean, the sister, you know, I was looking at, um, you know, I've been looking at trial transcripts and everything. I mean, the sister literally had to mop up blood, Gabriel's blood off the floor when the when after the parents had delivered the fatal blow. She literally had to help awful. mop up the blood. So this isn't just, a, I mean, it is about Gabriel, but you also have to understand that this is a much much deeper it affects the whole family complex story and it it also affects the community too i mean i i I can't say i'm a huge part of the community i don't live in palmdale but it affects it affects so many people and you know really what i'm hoping to do is really get to the answer why why this keeps happening and how can we prevent it and i think i'm in a good place to do that. And I think the work that I'm doing is really leading towards a trajectory of really being able to answer the why. And I think that will be, that will mean a lot to a lot of people, the community. And um, I, I think, I hope that will mean a lot to the community and the family members. And I hope beyond anything that understanding the why will 
be able to give them some semblance of closure in terms of feeling like there's at least one person that, you know, because I'm a journalist, so I do represent the system in some way. So I, I hope that I can provide some sense of closure in some sense that, you know, it might not be the system that they, you know, it's not DCSF, but at least there's a good person that's willing to challenge these Try very the answers. powerful, the corrupt answers. structures. Yeah. These very powerful and corrupt structures and very deficient in their duties um, structures to be able to get some kind of closure and then hopefully, you know, I mean, accountability is hard because accountability looks so different for so many people, but just answers. I think people just really, I think people just want answers. People, especially the family members, they want to know why this happened. And I, I, I totally understand that because this is their loved one. This was their, this was their cousin, their aunt, their, you know, this was their cousin, their niece, their nephew. I mean, you know, these, these children meant something to them. And if these children don't exist anymore, people want to know why this happened. And so, yeah. you know, I think, I think I'm really moving towards a place where I can hopefully answer that and provide, you know, another layer of closure to what, you know, will undoubtedly be a scar on these families um, for oh, the rest wow. of their lives. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I will. I, I think that what you're doing. That's is... a good place to end, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> That's I think... the soundbite. That's like the soundbite. <laughs> I'll make sure I try to find that one. Um, I think that it's awesome what you're doing. Um, I definitely am looking forward to reading your articles. Uh, in the information that you sent over to me, you said that people could find you on Instagram and on Clubhouse at Thea Eski. That's T-H-E-A-E-S-K-E-Y. Am I saying it right? Eski or Eski? Eski. It's Esky. like a key in a lock. Okay. Yeah. No, okay. you got Thea it. Thea Eski. Yes. <laughs> Awesome. And I'll have her contact information in the uh, episode details, as well as the link to the online publication where you can go and read the articles yourself. How many of those articles are published so far? So there's one published so far, and then I have two more that are going to come out soon. I'm just actually, I'm, I'm going to get on a call with my editor after uh, the editor that I'm working with, who also happens to be um an amazing person who I can't say enough good things about. I mean, she really like completely helped me pivot my entire life around and really like in such a short time. Um, so I'm gonna be working with her um, tonight, finishing the third article. And that third article is really the jump off point so that your so that readers can really begin to understand how DCSF failed Gabriel Fernandez, how DCSF failed Anthony Avalos and how DCSF failed Noah Quattro. So there's a lot coming down the pipe. I mean, I'm one person and this is a uh, this right. investigative report right. is not easy, even with an apparatus behind you. So really please, if you can support the articles, share them, push them out to your network. I think this is so vital to get out there and it's so vital to understand um, these really complex issues. And I think the first article is a good sort of, uh, you know, it was published at the end of April. And, you know, honestly, it took me that long to get DCSF on the record. It took me from the end of April until basically the middle of June, middle of July. Right. So, right. you know, it there was a lot like of figuring out and strategizing and researching and interviewing. <laughs> yes. I mean, this next article, this third article, you know, the second article is sort of like a bridge between the first and the third. Um, and so that one right. was a little shorter, but this, um, you know, this, this third article is about 4,000 words and it's, you know, you'll see when you read it. I mean, it's not unapproachably information dense, but it certainly is, it's not unapproachably information dense. It's not too academic or anything, but it certainly is 
very information dense in terms of what I am, the information that I'm presenting and all of these different threads that sort of link to all these different threads that I sort of link together. So, gotcha. um, okay. so that's, so that's the real sort of start of my investigation. So just be patient, please <laughs> be patient, please support, um, any, you know, please support, please share, you know, and, okay. you know, be patient, um, wherever you can. And, you know, I mean, my articles will come out when they come out, you know, I mean, I'm working as hard as I can. Yeah. But yeah. No pressure. I was just asking. <laughs> the bags under my eyes are for a reason you know yeah no pressure i was just asking like okay so i know you had one at least but i didn't know if you had more than that out yet and when to kind of be watching for it kind of thing but soon y'all y'all heard it here first the next two are coming soon so definitely those will those will definitely sort of start to give you a better idea of what's at stake in terms of what we've talked about today those articles will really start to help you understand what's at stake and also really help you to um, understand why and how and what and, and the various pressure points of, you know, DCSF's involvement in Gabriel Fernandez's home, Anthony Avalos's right. home, Noah Quattro's home, and how it failed, how it failed to protect those boys from harm. Awesome. Well, thank you, Miss Thea. We're going to go ahead and tie it up here. Thank you so much yep. for coming on today. It's been we a went pleasure. well over. We basically did an hour-long podcast. Is that okay? Yeah, we did. We did. So, um, just for everybody listening, thank you for hanging in with us. Make sure you connect with Miss Thea. You can find her connection information, contact information uh, for Clubhouse and Instagram, as well as her publication where her articles will be posted in the episode details. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. Thank you again, Thea. We'll see you all again next time. Hey friends, are we having fun yet? If you like what you're hearing here on the Picture It podcast, I'd ask for you to do a girl a solid. Go ahead and hit the subscribe button up there. Go ahead and turn on your notifications. That way you'll be the first to know when a new episode drops. If you would like to connect with me to say hi, to give me some topic ideas, or to come on as a guest speaker, please do. You can connect with me on Facebook or on Instagram at jwilsonpix. That's J-W-I-L-S-O-N-P-I-X.